1: Today, is there more to Trump's meeting with Erdogan than a trade deal and a missile system? Is convicted murderer Rodney Reed being railroaded? And from the interview, we look at how the Soviet Union highlights the strengths of classical pro-life persuasion. Plus, Disney gets woke with their new streaming service, and we probe the conventional wisdom that cutting waste, fraud, and abuse can pay for new federal programs. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello, welcome to the 180 cast. I'm Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicating to exploring how people change their minds. And you've tuned into another breakdown session where I talk about news and the big ideas behind them that impact you. And I break down and analyze the high points from the 180 cast interviews, which are every other week in depth and fascinating. And also respond to your thoughts on the flip phone and debunk a little conventional wisdom when it runs up against the facts. Of course, we have a lot to cover today. And by the time that we are done here, you will leave feeling smarter and more capable of understanding the news on a deeper level and more thoughtful. Hopefully. Uh, Before we get started, though, you can follow the 180cast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Tag me, DM me, don't be shy. Just a quick reminder. And with that, let us get into the top stories.
0: I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list.
1: Remember that one time when... Turkey invaded northeast Syria and started taking back territory from the Kurdish-led forces. And remember that a lot of people died and were displaced and a humanitarian crisis resulted after Trump pulled out troops precipitously ahead of this incursion. And then remember how a few days after that, Trump said that he had orchestrated a ceasefire and that there was no more fighting going on and that the ceasefire was holding up really well. Well, keep that in mind, because on Wednesday, Trump hosted a meeting at the White House with President Erdogan of Turkey, The meeting was to discuss an $80 billion trade deal and Turkey's possible purchase of the S-400 air defense missile system from Russia, which he is not supposed to do because it is security and and, uh, intelligence concern. Trump has delayed sanctioning Turkey for this, even though it's required by law. And now he is offering some inducements to Turkey to... um, get uh, them to behave better as they are supposed to being members of NATO. They're not supposed to be buying things from Russia. Uh, In this meeting, Trump heaped some praise on Erdogan and said that he has a great relationship with the Kurds.
0: I think the president has a great relationship with the Kurds. Many Kurds live currently in Turkey and they're happy and they're taken care of.
1: He also said that he is very good friends with Erdogan. And that he is a big fan of the president.
0: A big fan of the president. The president and I have been, we've been very good friends. We've been friends for a long time, almost from day one.
1: Now, this meeting occurs amid the ceasefire that wasn't. Really quite a ceasefire. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, fighting has continued this week with tens of people on both sides being killed in violent clashes involving shells and heavy machine guns, uh, between the, the SDF and forces loyal to Turkey. And then on top of that, U.S. drone cameras also caught what appeared to be summary executions by Turkey-backed militia, uh, and the, and the targeting of civilians. If you remember, Turkey's assault, along with the U.S. withdrawal from northeast Syria, has prompted more than 180,000 civilians to flee the border areas. That's according to the United Nations. uh, A senior administration official speaking anonymously told USA Today that they are aware, very aware, of the potential for ethnic violence in the region and that they may that may spiral into an ethnic cleansing. Some 100,000 Christians are estimated to live in the region and many of those are, are fleeing in fear of persecution and uh being killed. Now, that is the not, that is the background to what has happened in this meeting on Wednesday and Trump sat down with Erdogan, which is fine, expected, that we have diplomatic relationships, diplomatic relations with Turkey, but it is it is uh, interesting. It is kind of a head scratcher the way that that Trump has spoken about Erdogan. Well, there's some background on this that might help us understand how Trump has dealt with Turkey thus far and his sort of dovish. Approach to the country and knowing ahead of time that Erdogan was planning an incursion into northeast Syria and pulling out the troops anyway to let him do that. Okay, all this death and violence and persecution, right? And not enough people are talking about the not so little conflict of interest that President Trump has with Turkey. This is a story both from the New York Times and Washington Post. I have like four bullet points to hit that seem quite problematic to me and our conflicts of interest. Point number one, Trump admitted to this conflict of interest when speaking to Breitbart back in 2015. And the reason for that is he has two towers there, Trump Towers, which he continues to receive licensing fees from. And guess who cut the ribbons for the opening ceremony of those towers? That was actually then Prime Minister Erdogan. Point number two, additionally, Jared Kushner has been working a diplomatic back channel with Erdogan's son-in-law, who is the Turkish finance minister. The the finance minister, Mr. Albarek, successfully convinced Trump to back off the sanctions, which, as I said, were supposed to have been imposed on Turkey um, for the the Russian missile system, because Turkey is a member of NATO. Um, Albarek convinced Trump to back off those sanctions in an impromptu meeting in the Oval Office, in the Oval Office, back in April. Point number three, we also have the son of a Turkish tycoon operating as a business partner to the Trump organization, who is now working in the administration on behalf of Turkish interests. Point number four, Giuliani legally represented a Turkish man who was helping Iran avoid sanctions by getting money into the country in the form of gold. And Erdogan was not happy about this prosecution and was trying to work with the U.S. government to not have this happen. And Trump tried to intervene on his behalf to get the DOJ to stop the prosecution, asking then um, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to work with Giuliani on that case. Lindy Graham... In a backstory that I won't get into, has confirmed what I mentioned earlier, that Trump himself is, is very partial to Erdogan. He really likes him personally because he is a quote-unquote strong man, and Trump himself has, has said this on a previous occasion. So here are my thoughts. Trump's dovishness toward Turkey and his willingness to offer inducements and look the other way on Syria, I think may result from both this... Ball of conflict of interest, and remembering how Trump has praised Erdogan, his partiality toward the guy as a firm leader, his character. Partisans on both sides would do well to remember the deep background on Trump that people talked a lot about during the primaries. Deep background being who he is as a person, like his character and his reputation, and, and who he is as a businessman. What, what do his interests look like? What decisions has he made in the past that were financially motivated? Especially given the ongoing impeachment inquiry, I think it's proving to be more important than Trump's base or the, the quote-unquote anti-anti-Trump folks have believed or, or want to admit to themselves that Trump is Trump. And he's not going to stop being Trump. This is all very relevant to the impeachment inquiry, because at the heart of the impeachment argument is the idea that Trump did what he did for his own personal interests, not national interests, not national security interests. And if I were to argue for impeachment, I would certainly bring this into the mix as evidence that the president is fundamentally compromised. And this is all about Trump's state of mind, right? Democrats are trying to prove what Trump's state of mind was when he had this call with President Zelensky of Ukraine, when he was um, asking for aid to be withheld, when he was asking to apparently withhold this White House meeting, etc. All of this is comes down to... Um, trying to figure out what Trump's state of mind is, which I think is a fool's errand. I don't think that this this is this is possible in the least. I think it's totally going to fail. You can't really determine what somebody's state of mind was. And, and then, it, I mean, there's just, there's just no way to prove that as far as I can tell. But if I were a Democrat and I were pushing impeachment, I would definitely be talking about these conflict of interest because these are concrete things that show that Trump is is willing to bend the rules if he has a personal interest or personal relationships or generally um a partiality toward these uh individuals. And if you hear a baby crying in the background, that's because he is. But you know what? I had to record this podcast and <laughs> There's only so much I can do. He's fine, don't worry. Anyway, all this was forecasted by people who saw Trump's character from the beginning, and that he is motivated by money, that he is impulsive, as I think the decision to remove troops from Northeast Syria shows, and that he makes bad character judgments of others. And he is very, very partial to strongmen. And that's where he's gotten the reputation on the left of of being an authoritarian, I think, not because he is one, but because he admires them. Trump's character Matters as I have maintained since he got into the race. You can take the man out of business, I think, but you cannot take the business out of the man. And higher office does not transform you into somebody who is a better person than you were before you came into that office. I think, in fact, that it highlights your flaws and, and exerts pressure on your weakest points, and I do believe that that is what we see with President Trump. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, you know, like he's a villain or anything like that. I'm not saying that he deserves to be impeached. I'm not saying that, but I think that we can be honest and admit that Donald Trump is far from perfect, that he is deeply flawed, and that his personal relationships with people, how he judges people and his, his personal business interests are having an effect on how he does his job. And those are my thoughts. Having covered that, let us move on to interview highlights from episode 34. <music> episode 34 was with Katya Sedgwick, who is a writer and contributor to The Federalist like myself. She's an expat from Soviet Russia, and the reason I... Uh, had her on the podcast to discuss her pro-life conversion story was because she has this background that you don't normally hear about in the pro-life movement, which is a, a, she grew up in a completely different culture, arguably, well, at least arguably a very, very different culture and a very Different um, immersive view on abortion than what we experience in the United States, even in the most uh in even in the most progressive pockets of the United States, so she went from seeing abortion as what she considers uh, like something that's just totally normal to being in the traditional mainstream pro life position listen here's here's uh, how she explained how she thought about abortion back when she lived in Soviet russia.
0: I understood what procreation is and how it functions and how uh, babies are born or not born. I believed that abortion is a normal
1: part of every woman 's life, and I just accepted it as such. So according to her perspective, abortion was just a part of every woman's life. That's some pretty extreme language that you don't hear people even who grow up in San Francisco say, oh, abortion is a part of every woman's life. They say things like, um, you know, one in five women are going to have an abortion over their lifetime or something like that. Or I can't remember exactly what the statistic is, but abortion is a part of every woman's life. That's pretty extreme. And one of the things I appreciated most about her about her conversation was the strong case that she made just through her own experience in Soviet Russia for the traditional mainstream pro-life approach, approach to changing policy and changing hearts and minds because of the environment she grew up in. And I'm going to discuss that a little bit more after this, this second soundbite regarding Soviet education about um, reproductive health? I didn't really hear anything
0: about the baby. I just never thought about the baby being alive until it basically comes out. Although I understood that at some point it does become a human being because that was undeniable. There was a general lack of knowledge about how baby develops inside of the womb. Like for instance, it was believed that like when I talk to older women, they don't think that baby moves until 20 weeks.
1: One of the things that pro-life advocates emphasize a lot is the education regarding prenatal development. And what, what Katya described in her interview was a situation in which you knew sort of the the bare bones basics of how new human life is created, but you didn't know the details about when a heart beats or when the baby begins to move, which is much earlier than when the mother can feel it. It's more like eight or nine weeks when you can actually see the baby moving. And so that's a, b- a big part of pro-life persuasion is educating people on what prenatal development actually looks like. And the reason that most pro-life advocates don't believe women are at fault in choosing to have an abortion is because they believe they are largely ignorant about what this looks like. I, I think I remember Ben Shapiro a couple years ago said that women in this country are taught to believe that um, pre-born babies are, are just polyps. They're just sort of like little undifferentiated blobs and that they're they're just a clump of cells and and they're not human beings. His argument I think would be more persuasive if if he was talking about Soviet Russia, which is what is so fascinating about Katya's story is that all of these points that pro-life um advocates tend tend to make about how women think about abortion and how women are not at fault for abortion has to do largely with the lack of understanding of prenatal development. And then also it there there's not even really an emphasis on the baby to begin with. It's more about how is the woman um going to provide for herself? How is the woman going to be taken care of and what is the status of her health and so on and so forth. But when it comes to how Katya actually changed her mind, I mean, that's really the point that she made. Take a listen.
0: Say it was prenatal development. Although at that point, I remember thinking like, oh, but at that stage, it looks more like a fish. And now it looks more like a worm. And now, you know, so um, I didn't feel like it's a creature that I need to protect. But at the same time, um, just talking about the baby is what made me begin to change my mind about it.
1: And that's exactly what pro-life activists will tell you is if you sit people down and explain to them what human life actually looks like in the womb, they tend to become much more disgusted with what abortion is. And especially if you tell them about in detail about what the actual abortion procedure looks like, for instance, what uh, live action news does, they go on the street and they tell people or they show them videos about what like they're they're not super graphic, but they explain in detail what an actual abortion does. It tends to change people's mind personally in their personal view of abortion and whether they would ever consider having an abortion and whether they consider that to be a baby or just as I said, a clump of cells. It's very, very, very persuasive and and Katya said, um." She said that uh, when she became pregnant and she started looking at the the sonogram and the doctors talking to her about the health of her baby and just generally putting a focus on the baby and its welfare and speaking of it as a baby and not simply a quote-unquote fetus, that that really began to change her mind like, oh, this is this is a baby. This is not just a clump of cells. So... When you put it together, in the Soviet Union, the the abortion rate was extremely high. In some areas, it was like 770 abortions over 100 births. Very, very, very high. I mean, when she said abortion was a part of every woman's life, she that was not hyperbole. She's not exaggerating because the, the data backs her up on this. That is a culture of death. If you're going to pin... If, if you're going to look around the world or, or through history and and identify a culture of death when it comes to the pre born the soviet Union was was certainly would certainly be a top candidate for that even though katya said that she that that the women who had abortions they didn't shout their abortions they weren't proud of it they were still embarrassed about it but it was a routine thing that happened all of the time because. You know they they weren't using birth control not nearly to the extent that it's used in the United States or even to the extent that the extent that it was used before the collapse of the Soviet Union in the United States. Um, But that is a powerful element of pressure on women, and that's one of the points that is drilled down over and over and over again within the pro life movement. Is this is a culture of death women um women are not at fault because they're they're immersed in this culture of death. they don't understand how a baby develops. they think that abortion is normal they believe that a- abortion is their constitutional right and it's it's so extreme and to such a point that you can't really even blame women for going and getting an abortion, and in fact they are. Equal in status in terms of victimhood to the the child that is actually uh, being destroyed in the womb. I mean, that's there's one more leg to this, which also really matches up with Katya's description of what abortion was like in the Soviet Union, and that is the lack of resources. Just obstetrical care in in general in the Soviet Union, from what she recalls when she was growing up, it was was very poor, even. When the emphasis was on the woman, there was overcrowding, the women weren't treated well, they weren't getting the care that they needed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There just weren't a lot of resources, but especially there weren't a lot of resources for the child. There was not the institution of adoption like there is in the United States, where adoption is widespread. Many, many couples are willing to adopt, especially within the pro-life movement, are willing to adopt babies that might otherwise be aborted. And when you are um, in a situation as a woman where you might be considering abortion, you you know that if you give birth, that there is going to be someone there who's going to take care of your child and love your child and isn't just going to go into the system. There are people who are willing to adopt your baby. That was not the case in the Soviet Union. When, when you had a child and you couldn't take care of that child, And the economic circumstances were absolutely dire for so many people within the Soviet Union. And you felt like you couldn't take care of that child. That child goes into one of those awful orphanages, and that's how she described it. So you've got a culture of death, a lack of knowledge about prenatal development, and a a lack of resources on top of that. Those are basically the three pillars that the pro-life movement stands on in terms of its not just its persuasion techniques on, on how to, um, on how to persuade women away from choosing abortion, but in terms of how women who abort are viewed as far as their culpability is concerned. So you could look at that as like, bing, 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 bing. Well, it seems like that really holds up right like that is how you persuade people it's you give them resources you give them knowledge about prenatal development and you then that's how you break down the culture of death but when you think about it does that that might apply to the soviet union and and women who grew up in the soviet union during that time when abortion was a normal part of every woman's life but does that apply to the united states I think that's a question that we really need to ask because Katya grew up with the Soviet mindset on abortion. And then when she came to the United States and experienced obstetrical care in the United States of mother and baby, that's when she began to change her mind. So obviously there is a very big difference between what she experienced in Russia and what she experienced in the United States, even as she said, she did have pro-choice friends. There was, a, there was a, a marked difference in how we approach the baby, how we talk about the baby. That makes a really big difference. So do we have in the United States a culture of death that is to the extent described by Katya? I I believe the answer is no. You could argue otherwise, but I believe the answer is no. Does the pro-life movement... It, I mean, the pro-life movement does, I i will say, a fantastic job of providing resources for women who are in troubled circumstances, who need diapers, who need formula or, or breastfeeding classes or counseling or money or whatever it is that they need of of making sure that women are connected with people who can adopt their baby. Like, all of that is great and super important and the the education that they do regarding prenatal development I think does contribute in addition to the widespread use of contraception to lowering the abortion rate overall because the abortion rate has dropped over the past couple decades but you know it hasn't dropped this is just something to consider and if you if you disagree with me on this you can Call or text at 323-999-1802. What hasn't dropped is the percentage of people polled who still maintain that Roe v. Wade should not be overturned, that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and that women have a constitutional right to abortion. So in terms of of individual women choosing life, the pro-life movement seems to be doing very well. In terms of convincing other people to change their perspective on policy, they seem to not be doing very well because although people may be personally disgusted with the idea and Kat and Katya in her, in her transition to becoming pro-life, she went through that stage where she said, I would never have an abortion. I don't agree with that, but who am I to judge? Who am I to tell other women that they, that they cannot make that decision for themselves? that seems to be where a lot of Americans are, where the majority of Americans are, where it's I would never I would never have an abortion. I believe it's a human life. I believe it's a baby, but but other people have the right to decide that for themselves. So we are still in this position where the number of people is something like I think three quarters of Americans still believe that abortion in this country should be legal and that Roe v. Wade should, should not be overturned. We're still in that um, position, but if you want to hear more about Katya's perspective on that and how people change their mind, you can go back to episode 34 and listen to that conversation. And I really encourage you to do that. I really hope you do. And with that, let's move on to today's Woke of the Week.
0: My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about
1: to get woke. So you know how everyone has been joking about trigger warnings to the point where you wonder if trigger warnings are even a real thing anymore because they've been ridiculed to death? Well, I have a story here from Hot Air woke alert, Disney adds trigger warnings to Dumbo and other classics. So here's what happened. (laughs) As you uh, probably know, Disney released their streaming service, Disney Plus, which has the much-anticipated Mandalorian Star Wars saga series thing. Whatever. I'm I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. But beneath the plot summary of some of these classics, such as Dumbo... It says this, quote, this program is presented as originally created. It may contain outdated cultural depictions, unquote. And this is found on Dumbo, Lady and the Tramp, Tarzan, possibly others. Outdated cultural depictions. Okay, why are we doing this? That is the question that we need to ask instead of just ridiculing it. Why are we doing this? Does everything from the past need to be presented with a caveat? Does it always need to have an asterisk next to it? Here's my thing. These are children's stories. These are for children who are impressionable. Of course, you can argue for a three-year-old, this is all going to go over their head. I mean, outdated cultural depictions like the Siamese cats and Lady and the Tramp, like that's just going to go right over their heads. It doesn't, they're not going to understand. But maybe if they're a little bit older, which older children do obviously enjoy these Disney classics, maybe that does get to them. Maybe they don't quite understand, oh, this was made a long time ago. There's maybe a little bit of bigotry involved, a little bit of xenophobia, whatever you want to call it, and you want to mm, protect kids in that age category from being exposed to these ideas and then taking them and having it influence the way they interact with other people because kids are little sponges and they pick up all of these things and they may not quite understand where it comes from and why they should or shouldn't use certain words or phrases and so you know maybe that maybe for people who haven't seen Dumbo or Lady and the Tramp or Tarzan since they were like five might need a reminder that they c- contain some outdated cultural depictions, which you may not want to expose your kids to. I don't have a problem with that. If you don't want to expose your, your kids to things that you think are like um, not woke enough in terms of treating people the way that they should be pe- be, be treated and having people not be dehumanized or stereotyped or stigmatized, that's that's fine. I mean, I'm probably I'm, I would probably consider myself in that boat. I I am careful about the things that my my kids are exposed to. But is that the reason that we're doing this? Are we doing this as like a warning for kids in the same way that we say something is G or PG or PG thirteen? Or are we doing this? Is Disney doing this just to sort of cover their butts? From social justice warriors who are saying, I cannot believe that you could possibly put Dumbo and Tarzan and Lady and the Tramp and Aladdin. I can't believe that you would continue to put these on your streaming service and try to make money off of them when they're just so outdated and just so offensive. Personally, I think that this is a CYA. I mean, they didn't even wait for the criticism to roll in. They said this from the very beginning. And I think it fits in with what I talked about in the last breakdown session of this impulsive need by progressives to revise everything, to put asterisks on everything from the past. And and if you can't revise it or put uh, the appropriate caveat on it, then... You just eliminate it you just throw it in the memory hole and that is the way that history is being approached and artifacts of, of history such as these Disney classics the effect should be not that people are chilled uh, chilled from watching these movies like they're they're watching something that should be forbidden the effect should be that ch- uh, parents are looking at what they're kids are watching and getting that quick reminder that this contains outdated cultural depictions and maybe they don't want to expose their kids to that, which is totally fine. But yeah, this does fit into the, the overall approach, progressive approach to artifacts of history that you can't, you can't just leave it the way it is and just let it be what it is and make up your own opinion about it. You have to have some sort of statement next to it denouncing this, that, or the other thing, which is exhausting. I mean, if this, if this really catches on, this whole thing of outdated cultural depictions, or this may contain some, um, this, this may contain a, a stereotype, or this may contain some language that is no longer considered appropriate, or whatever, like, that is exhausting. Are we, is this meant to have us sort of censor ourselves and keep us from watching certain things. But like also still, but but companies like Disney are also still getting credit for hanging on to the classics and making them available for people to still continue watching. It's like, we're trying to have it both ways. And I don't think that if we continue down this road with children's movies, it's fine. But if this is going to be on other things like, I don't know, a Christmas story or something like that where other people think that that's terrible. Like, for instance, you know, like in a Christmas story where the mother shoves the bar of soap in his mouth as a punishment. I don't know of anybody who does that today. That seems pretty terrible to me. Should you put a caveat on that? Should you put an asterisk and say, this may contain outdated models of parenting, outdated punishment techniques, Or something like that. Like, how far are we going to go with this? I don't know. I don't know, but it's a question to ask. With that, I would love to check messages from the flip phone. I'd like to have an argument, please. I have a different interpretation. I love taking messages on the flip phone. This one is from somebody who did not leave their name. It reads... Hi, Georgie. I've really been enjoying your podcast, and I find myself learning about and shifting my opinions on topics I might not have otherwise explored further. Since you're in the business of exploring all sides of an issue why well, yes, I am—would you consider having Blair White in, on the podcast? I used to be pretty set in my beliefs and views on transgender people, but recently i watched some of her videos, and my views started to soften. I'm curious to see if a conversation with her could do the same for you and other listeners." Great suggestion, and I have looked into this suggestion a little bit. It is something that I have been thinking about, and I have decided that I am going to reach out to Blair White and see if we can make that interview happen. I think that that would be fascinating, and it would be an open minded, um, just generous conversation, I think, a candid conversation on the topic. And if Blair White is game for that, then I am too, particularly because way back in episode six, we had Walt Hare on the podcast. Walt Hare runs um, a sort of organization where he helps People who have transitioned, um, de-transition, and, and get them help doing that because he lived as a woman for many years and then transitioned back to living as a biological male. So he obviously had very very strong uh, opinions on that, and I'm sure Blair White has strong opinions too. Um, for those who don't know, Blair White is a biological male who is living as a woman. is a very popular YouTuber and. Is sort of on the the center right side of politics, which is also very very interesting. And yeah, I think that that would be a fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for sending me that suggestion. And uh, I will update you if if Blair White um, is willing to come on the podcast. So thank you so much. And with that, let us move on to debunking a little conventional wisdom. Okay, time to debunk a little conventional wisdom. Politicians, and depending on who you're arguing with, some other people who listen to politicians, love to say that government can pay for their new pet programs and entitlements and cut deficits by getting rid of waste, fraud, and abuse. And voters tend to think this is a a great idea because why wouldn't you want to get waste, fraud, and, and abuse? Nobody wants that. Is this true though? Is it true? I have some data here that is compiled by Citizens Against Waste, Fraud, and Abuse, which seems like an appropriate source for this subject. (laughs) All right. Okay. So just let me... Okay. I'm just going to outline this for you really quick. Okay. Citizens Against Waste, Fraud, and Abuse has been publishing this document called Prime Cuts since 1993. And the 2018 version contains 636 recommendations that would save taxpayers allegedly $429.8 billion in the first year and $3.1 trillion over five. To put that in context, the federal deficit is expected to average $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. So $429.8 billion would be about... Thirty-six percent of the annual deficit. That's not bad. That's not bad. With if you take every single one of the six hundred and thirty-six recommendations, which is basically eliminating all corporate welfare, which like that's gonna happen. And okay, it's not bad. So, but it, st- it still leaves room for how are you going to cover th- three quarters of a trillion dollars that we need to make up in order to be budget neutral. Three quarters of a trillion dollars is kind of a lot of money. And if you cut these things, which I mean, everything that I read out of these recommendations absolutely 100% should be cut. But the, the, they're not going to be cut because a lot of these federal wealth, um, these corporate welfare programs are not things that people consider to be waste, fraud, and abuse. And abuse. They're not like, quote-unquote improper social security payments or improper medicare payments which doesn't just cover fraud it covers like any time a mistake is made and how much somebody is getting paid out of another taxpayer's pocket this is this is wishful thinking okay the, like 636 recommendations are great of course we want to cut waste fraud and abuse but it's wishful thinking because politicians when they quote unqu when they try to cut things quote unquote," they don't really cut things because they're politicians, and they want to make sure that the people who are getting paid continue to get paid so they continue to vote for them so what usually what happens is that they just like change the name and the format of wasteful programs to something else in order to say that they cut corporate welfare and they really you know stuck it to the man and they cut wasteful outdated programs and they can name those things like blah 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 we cut this line item out and that line item out etc cetera, etc cetera. but they don't really they're not really doing anything it's just it, it's just smoke and mirrors so let me give you an example okay consider the peanut subsidy the peanut subsidy is a corporate welfare program plain and simple From Citizens Against Waste, Fraud, and Abuse, quote, originally peanuts were subsidized with a production quota. Only those who owned or leased production quotas from the government were allowed to produce. These valuable quotas drove the cost of peanuts to nearly twice the world price, which is what corporate welfare does. The 2002 Farm Bill eliminated production quotas, but Congress chose to create a new... Direct Payment Program, in order to compensate farmers for removing this quote-unquote resource. And that cost taxpayers $1.3 billion over five years. The Direct Payment Program, it continues, created a system of payments and counter-cyclical payments to historic peanut producers, or those who grew peanuts from 1998 to 2001. Unbelievably, the farmers were paid regardless of whether they currently produced peanuts. That is what happens when you ask politicians to cut waste, fraud, and abuse. You want to know what the real problem is? The real problem is that the scope of government is way too large. The problem is that we've been engaging in corporate welfare and and other forms of welfare payouts for way too long. We never should have started that. Once you get the tip of that wedge in there, that wedge is just going to keep moving and moving and moving and taking up bigger and bigger slices of the pie. The government just keeps growing. Once you put a program in place, you don't get to cut it. You can change its name. You can maybe trim off a little bit of the excess. You can maybe identify where there's fraud and cut that because, you know, nobody's for fraud. fraud. That's fine, but you're never going to get rid of it. so this idea that that mostly politicians put forward, so you can call this a talking point if you want, but it is it's repeated to the point where it is essentially conventional wisdom for the people who buy into that, like oh no, we can totally just cut waste fraud and abuse and we'll save so much money, and that will help put social security back on the right track or That will help cut down on the deficit, and we don't really need to cut any of these other programs because we can cut waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, if you want to make any serious dent in waste, fraud, and abuse, as I just outlined, then you have to cut programs. You have to cut entire programs. You have to cut all of those subsidies. So that's the problem. The problem is that the scope of government is way too large, and it just naturally produces a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse that will go unidentified and or when it is identified will not be cut because people are relying on that and that's how you get votes. The other problem is that social security, medicare, medicaid, and other health programs like nutrition programs make up more than two-thirds of the federal budget. That is what we consider mandatory spending. In the pie chart that is mandatory spending because we have promised people money we need to give them money. And if you cut out all of the discretionary spending—that other third, which is where most of the pork is, right—that Citizens Against Waste Fraud and Abuse has, has been talking about—if you cut all of that out, which also includes the military, international affairs, transportation, the uh, the the environment, all of that stuff. I mean, seriously, the military is in dis- discretionary spending. Did you know that? Yes, it's true. Even if you cut out that whole third, you would still only have half of the money that you need to pay for the existing mandatory programs, just to put it in perspective, okay? Tax revenue doesn't even cover the mandatory entitlements. It's short by almost half a trillion dollars, according to nationalpriorities.org. Almost half a trillion dollars, like 0.4 something trillion dollars. So we're financing the rest of that with the debt. And Uh, paying interest on the debt is like six percent of our annual budget just so you know no bottom line no you cannot pay for new stuff or fix current existing popular programs by cutting waste fraud and abuse get off my lawn sometimes people just tell you what you want to hear They tell you what you want to hear so often that you begin to think it's actually a plausibility. Because who doesn't want to cut waste, fraud, and abuse? It's like built into the mythos of legislative do-goodery. Like, you know, if we continue down this path of rhetoric like Medicare for all is not going to put new taxes on the middle class. Please. Please. Seriously. That is all I have for you today in episode 35. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you found this enjoyable and helpful, and I hope you will stick around for the next interview, which I am very excited to share with you, as always. And please do not hesitate to reach out with your questions or comments by calling the flip phone at 323-999-1802, or you can flip out. Or not flip out. Glowing praise is also accepted. You can try to flip my position. Or you can tell me about your own 180 story. Or send me tips on other 180 stories. Because I am always looking for interesting people to interview. Who have a compelling story on how they changed their mind. 323-999-1802. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter. Mostly Twitter. And sometimes Instagram. (laughs) At 180 cast And if you do like the 180 cast, if you have a spare minute, go ahead and go to Apple podcasts and give it a quick review and a rating. That would be so, so helpful for this podcast. You don't even know how much I would appreciate that. And remember, if you are listening on SoundCloud, you can also listen on Google podcasts and Apple podcasts and hopefully soon we will be on spotify as well i am working on that you can follow me at georgie underscore borman where i continue to opine on current events from politics to pop culture to faith until next time seek the truth share your values and listen with your heart and your mind god bless Struggle, though let me see who I am, what I need, who have got in be. the middle of the struggle, though let me see who I am, what I need, who have got in the middle of executive producer Kevin McCullough, music by Ruthie Crock. What I need, who have got in the middle of the struggle, Lord let me see who I am, what I need, who have got, got, got to be.
0: rock a t- cast rock a t- cast rock a t- cast And cut. Bye. <laughs>